Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices, to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Here in the U.S. and to your U.S. listeners, at least, I think what may be lost is that despite the U.S.'s very aggressive stance against crypto, the totally opposite attitude is being adopted by governments on the other side of the world. And Jin talked a little bit about Japan. I would just highlight Hong Kong really as a proxy to China, mainland China. But it's very clear that China is opening up to crypto through Hong Kong. This is a total about face from less than two years ago when China banned crypto trading and mining in 2021 and all of a sudden reopening to retail in Hong Kong in June, like coming up. I think China's reopening up to crypto as a response to a few factors, uh, which gives me confidence that this isn't like a short-term, short-lived kind of thing. First is China is really increasing the priority of economic growth over social control in their economy. I mean, a totally different issue than Japan, which has been dealing with 0% growth for 20 years. But like China, you know, is going from six to five is really scary or five to four is really scary for their people. And so in particular, it's tech giants have slowed a lot because of regulation in China. And so they're trying to get that back, right, by looking at crypto. Second is that China is really trying to regain lost mindshare from the last few years in Asia. The center of gravity for capital in Asia has very seriously shifted towards Singapore after the Hong Kong political issues, after China's extended COVID lockdown. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I am Bernard Leung. And while everyone in the world is excited about AI this year, what has happened to Web3 and crypto globally this year, other than just rising Bitcoin and Ethereum prices? Going in the style of a roundtable discussion, I've asked my friends Cosmo, Jinkam, and Juni to share their recent Q1 2023 report from Global Coin Research. And of course, I'm going to go with the standard disclaimer. I'm a supporter of Global Coin Research. And this is not investment, financial, or even life advice. So please do your own research when it comes to crypto and Web3. Cosmo, Jinkang, and Juni, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hey, yeah. Fun to yeah, be here. Thanks, Bernard. Yeah. So for Cosmo and Jinkang, y'all have been on the show. So no strangers to me and Juni, it's your first time. But first of all, I just wanted to check on you guys. So uh, Cosmo and Jinkang, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Yeah, nothing much. I want to update from my end. Still you know, reading founders and investing in early stage crypto projects since we talk. And obviously I'm also looking to find ways to work more directly with projects, either as an advisor. And I do think it's a good time for me to understand what it means to start a new project or scale a project from one to 10, for instance. So that's where I've been focused on. Mm. Do you see more protocol projects or maybe just more applications that is trying to onboard more people into Web3 and crypto? Probably more in the latter. That's where I, I do believe where crypto becomes interesting. But at this moment, I just see more infrastructure projects at this point. Cosmo, we last spoke in the most interesting era of our time. So tell me, what have you been up to? 
Well, it's only continued to get more interesting. But yeah, it's great to speak again. The markets continued to be very eventful since we last spoke a month ago with the USDC depegging and Silvergate situation. You know, fortunately, Nova River, the fund I manage, continues to perform very well amidst the volatility. And there are plenty of really interesting idiosyncratic alpha generating situations in the market that we can continue to invest behind. Did the Chappelle upgrade also make added or improve your current trades because of ETH yeah. able to be unstake now at any time? Yeah, I, I'm not allowed to necessarily speak to the exact trades I do, but it's mm. it certainly created a lot of volatility and it's no surprise to people on looking back that it was a very positive event for Ethereum generally and then also for asset prices, although we've seen a little bit of pullback since then. But yeah, that was a, that was a good situation. I'm going to now direct my questions to Junae, since it's your first time joining us on the show. Can you introduce yourself and what's your role in coverage within Global Coin Research? Yep. Thanks for having me, Bernard. So I joined GPR as a core contributor a little over a year ago. So GPR is specifically focused on partnerships, and I'm also a deal lead working along, alongside Jin to source a lot of deals, lead a lot of deal calls, and then kind of, um, I guess, review these investment opportunities on behalf of our community members. And then outside of that, I'm a founding member of a project called Knox, where a payroll and compliance solution for the pseudonymous economy. And I actually went through this fundraising process like two months ago. So it's been great being on both sides, both reviewing investment opportunities, as well as going through this opportunity and, and kind of getting a better, I guess, understanding of the current market conditions for, for both, the, I guess, investors as well as founders. So given that I have now gone video, so I'm going to ask this quick question before we get into the meat of the show. What lessons can you share about your career journey with my audience? Maybe Cosmo, I know you talk about it, so I'm going to start with you first. Sure, yeah. I guess there are a lot of things. Maybe the most important thing probably is beyond, you know, the, the, the obvious is of stay curious and humble is, is always be long-term greedy. I like to think that this means different things at different ages, but always prioritize being long-term greedy over short-term greedy. And so so when you're younger, that means valuing mentorship and learning over immediate compensation, because especially in investing, it's like such an apprenticeship business. And I'm very fortunate to have learned from some of the sharpest people in the industry. And then, you know, in the middle of your career, being long-term greedy means decision-making and you're like in a decision-making position, it means overweighting process and integrity over short-term outcomes. Like if, if you have the right process and you do things in the right way, that's better than maximizing short-term gains. Um, and then late in your career, it, being long-term greedy means investing your time and energy and training the younger talent to get leverage for yourself, obviously, but also to pass along that legacy of institutional knowledge to, to the next generation. I suppose when you say long-term greedy, it's about compounding as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I believe in investing over trading, although both 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 can make money, but you know, the, the richest people in the world or the, the most financially successful in the world are, are investors, not traders. And that's because of the magical power, or Buffett calls it like the fourth law of physics or something, the power of compounding. And of course, thank you for recommending me the Denise Show book. And I actually been reading that book and really mm. taught me a little bit about how to stabilize my mind when it comes to thinking about trading. But I'm going to flip to Jin Kang. What about you then? It's been an eventful journey for myself too. Left private equity to do early stage investing, which I always thought was intellectually stimulating. And I've been always curious about how investors think in this spectrum of the world. And it's been a humbling experience. I don't think there's a clear playbook on what you invest in. And I think constantly you have to be sharp, meet as many people as possible. And it's almost a pattern recognition game at, at this time. So 
I'm just trying to meet as many people and collect as many data points. And that advice I give people is just be out there, just hustle, be on your bud, run around instead of just sitting behind a computer and just talking to people over Zoom. I think in-person meetings are definitely underrated. And I think people should definitely take advantage of that if you want to do private investing in general. Junie, how about you? What are the career lessons you can share? To be honest, I'm like the youngest one out of this crew. So I think from what I've experienced, it's basically surrounding yourself with very intelligent as well as motivated people because that kind of pushes you. Like you want people to hold you accountable and also want you to be the better version of yourself. And then secondly, it's like never thinking it's too late to jump in because I have friends who want to get into Web3 right now. Background about myself, I got into like crypto, just like buying tokens back in 2016, 2017. But I didn't really start working until last year. Like global coin research was kind of what kickstarted my, I guess, my career in crypto. And I thought I was late, but crypto is still a very nascent space. So it's, it's really never too late. If you meet the right people, surround yourself with smart people. I think it's very easy to kickstart your career in crypto still. You know, that's similar to what happened to Mark Andreessen as well. He thought he was too late when he started the browser <laughs> and then it turned out to be the next paradigm shift. So we are right in the beginning. We're right in the beginning of, I don't know whether it's a bear bullish market, but I'm going to get straight into the discussion today. So we're going to talk about the global coin research market and investment trends review. I want to start off first, maybe just to talk about what are the key highlights for the market and investment trends review in the Q1 2023. Because more, I think the markets is probably the most interesting because it seems to have recovered. So maybe we will start off with you and then I can later get Jin or Juni to talk about the investment trend side. Yeah, absolutely. So keeping it high level, look, 2023 started off with a really strong rebound across all risk assets, not just crypto. And it's really important to set the context leading into 2023. The crypto industry had just suffered through an eight-month stretch of unlimited bad news, almost starting a little over a year ago now with Luna's unraveling in April and then Capstone by the collapse of FTX in November. It's just... Position, investor positioning sentiment was as negative as possible at the end of a historically bad year across all asset classes. Like fixed income had its worst year in a century. And, and so given that backdrop, I believe the bottom for it's, it's maybe not so surprising if the bottom for asset prices is behind us. You know, year to date, Bitcoin is up 70%. Ethereum is up 50%. This compares to the S&P index, which is up seven and the more tech heavy growth oriented index, NASDAQ up 19 these numbers, you know, sound very high, but strong performance is actually not that out of character for, for the asset class. Like if we look at the prior 2019 to 2021 cycle, there are multiple years of 50% plus annual performance for Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so, you know, this, this performance year to date or deference in the first quarter was really actually only within a one standard deviation of a 90 day move, which is wild when you think about it, because we're talking plus 50 plus 70, but it's truly only within a one standard deviation move. And if we're at the beginning of a bull cycle, like this, there's a few hundred percent ahead of us. But like, I think the, the reason for pause is like, look, much like in equities, the more than a hundred percent of the S&P's performance was driven by six stocks, six tech stocks. Clearly the economy and most companies are not doing well. Bitcoin was up 70% and the rest of the crypto market was only up 20%. So like there's just this massive massive performance and and actually the rest of the crypto market x bitcoin was down since january so there's a there's a clear dichotomy it's not like all clear all healthy but we came from a position of incredible weakness and so that's where performance has been strong to start the year 
you just mentioned that it's almost a year since the Terra Luna collapsed. Yeah. We are right in the beginning of the May cycle again. So the whole year has been a very messy picture been going on with all these collapses going on. So maybe, Jinkan Jenny, maybe what, you want to talk a little bit about how the investment trends are? Yeah, I can quickly start. And Jenny could add in if I miss something. Dominance of infrastructure projects still continues. We've seen big projects like Monad, Say Labs, Chain raising humongous rounds in the midst of the challenging macro environments. And we've seen Aptos trading at over $10 billion FTV. We saw Sui launch and they're now trading above $10 billion FTV. And that pretty much highlights the fact that I think a lot of investors and users and traders believe that token projects, I guess infrastructure projects with token element are where the money is headed toward. And they want to bet on this because clearly there is a, an appetite for either speculation or trading. And that really does set a context for investors to spend more time in infrastructure in general. And that's what we've seen in Q1 2023. Junior, anything to add on your end? Yep. Just following on what Jen said, there's like a dichotomy in terms of like the types of what founders are experiencing right now. On the one hand, a lot of investors are fighting over a small pool of deals that are being heavily oversubscribed. Jen and I have spoken to a few projects that were that are raising and they're like three times oversubbed versus the vast majority of other projects are struggling to find investors. But despite that, during my fundraising process, like I've talked to hundreds of investors and none of them ever said, oh, we're going to hold off from investing now. They're just kind of searching for the right investment opportunities or waiting for a lead investor or some other investor that they trust to kind of be the first one in. To, and, 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 and then you experience this like flood of other investors that want to get in as well. So we are kind of like moving from a formal market now to everybody just step back and wait for the first person to step in situation if, if i read yep. what you say correctly and then there is fomo in those specific types of deals where like a project can be raising for a couple of months and then they finally land a few big name investors and then there's fomo into that specific deal whereas a lot of other projects like some have been raising for six plus months and and they're running out of runway so it, it's a very difficult time and, and that's why I think there is such a huge focus on infrastructure projects because investors just feel more comfortable in that vertical versus consumer application. There's also the question that a lot of crypto VC raised a big amount of funds during that period of time. If I understand, it's about somewhere around 100 billion of dry powder left, as someone claims, but the numbers can differ. But just like wondering in my mind, has it actually been deployed or is it just when the capital calls actually happen, maybe the LPs decided not to put the capital in or something like that? Do you have, you have you observed things like that? Or maybe it's just this passing phase where we are just actually only everybody's holding back. That's all. Honestly, I think a lot of funds are not trying to be proactive in this stage. And I think Jenny's right there, all trying to become more opportunistic rather than deployed as fast as possible as we've seen in the past two years. And luckily for funds who've raised, they are sitting on dry powder. So they do have a set manager fee that comes in, but at the same time, they are, they want to be careful about doing capital calls and be mindful of the LPs who might be underwater because they were over allocated to a venture as an asset class. Okay. So I think the other question that I'm going to pass it back to Cosmo, how has the macro picture influenced the Web3 and crypto market? Sometimes it's an art and sometimes it's a science, depending on which which part you want to draw the, your trend lines on prices versus the market itself. Yeah. And I think the answer has changed over time as crypto has matured into a larger asset class. Four years ago, when it was still tiny asset class, sort of considered deep tech, like it had no correlation to the broader market. But now that it's 
Trillium Plus has its eyes on it. You know, it's every day it's on CNBC. It's for sure become much more tethered to the global macro. You know, in a, in a macro environment, I guess just like today's macro picture, I would say the last decade has really been driven by increasing central bank liquidity, and that's sort of been the largest driving force. And so no surprise, as that liquidity has dried up over the last year, it's been bad for all asset classes, including crypto. Tightening is, is close to running its course. The US Fed yesterday just talked about that probably being the last rate hike. You know, The markets are pricing in two cuts by the end of this year, which may be a little crazy, but rational people can debate that. But it'll take some time to feel the impact of this tightening of liquidity. And then like, it only gets worse because of the recent banking crisis, which also tightens up credit. That said, going forward, I think it's useful to maybe separate the market into Bitcoin on one side and then the rest of crypto on the other side. Bitcoin is much more like a commodity and thus more tied to gold and rates. Like there are zero fundamentals to Bitcoin. And so like that is both um, the reason people criticize it, but also the reason why it, it has a reason to exist. And so because it's more tied to commodities rates, it's actually much more likely to outperform early in a cycle when rates stop rising. And whereas Ethereum and other smart contract networks and applications that Jen, Juni, and I are all more interested in learning about. They're more tethered to real fundamentals, which are tied to the real economy. And so the consumers are in for some serious painful belt tightening through the rest of this year. We are most likely going, call it whatever you want, recession, mild recession, heavy recession, but there will be pain. And so that's going to limit the adoption of emerging tech. And investors have to apply higher discount rates. They're not willing to stretch as much on valuations. A lot of them are licking their wounds. Most venture funds haven't taken their marks. And so it'll take some time for that to wash out. So I would maybe separate what's going on in, you might see, start to see some early cycle recovery and Bitcoin continue, but the more like tech stock-like tokens like Ethereum and the rest may need a broader economic recovery before they can mm. enter a sustainable bull market. Can I just drill into that Bitcoin piece a little bit? Because I think during this period of time, there was ordinals that came up with the NFT. Mm -hmm. And because of all the transactions that's going on with people minting NFTs with Bitcoin using all the nodes, right? They actually now have a security budget that gives them a little bit more safety on that. I don't know, but this is kind of also the start of where Bitcoin's utility is also beginning to show up. So I don't know whether parts of it, we're just seeing different parts of it, like feeling an elephant for the rising price of Bitcoin itself. Yeah. I personally am very excited about Bitcoin's the emergence of ordinals. Before this, to me, Bitcoin, as a fundamental sort of like originally stock investor, now liquid token investor, I, I care deeply about like there needs to be a reason to exist. And so Bitcoin, for me personally, was very hard to own. But with the emergence of ordinals as a use case, and then with the emergence of potentially more interest in smart contract platforms being built on top of Bitcoin, it's it's actually really exciting. It's an exciting time to own Bitcoin again. That, that said, like, Look, the fees on Bitcoin from transaction fees is like still less than 2% of mining issuance. So like we're nowhere close to it being like a sustainable thing, but we're starting to see the, the initial signs of it. And there are different ways that you can express that, which, which Nova River has. I'm, I'm going to get to this thing. In 2022, you see the prices of cryptocurrencies are in tandem with the S&P 500. Okay. But now in 2023, the Bitcoin and Ethereum prices seems to be moving up whenever a bank runs are happening. It seems that people are just betting on bank runs that will force the Fed to print money and drop the interest rates. I think they're trying to price that in. Question for me, maybe to all of you, how should we think about the market? Well, look, just to answer that, that first point, the recent banking crises have actually been uniquely positive for digital assets and especially Bitcoin. There have now been five bank failures and counting, 
we'll see with knock on wood, we'll see with the rest this week or next week. But each bank failure has underscored the fragility of the fractional reserve banking system and its reliance on centralized counterparties, including the US Fed. And so like the banking contagion totally validates crypto's original use case of Bitcoin as a store of value secured by decentralization, not subject to counterparty risk as a viable alternative to traditional financial institutions like a regional bank. There's no risk that your assets stored on a public blockchain in a self-custody wallet can be taken from you. And Bitcoin was designed and launched exactly in response to the 2008 global financial crisis and the bank failures then. So, so it's, it's maybe no surprise that Bitcoin has sort of risen up during this time and, and is outperforming while their bank while there's bank contagion. And and like, frankly, the because again, because Bitcoin doesn't really have like, a, it's sort of like, it's only worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it. It's one of those assets where price action is actually very important in validating that thesis. Like as price goes up, the thesis becomes more true. And so Bitcoin as a store of value asset, like is judged only by its price performance. And the last time there were banking crises was 2008, Bitcoin wasn't out yet. Gold was your only option. And allocators have been trained over decades to sort of look to gold as their portfolio hedge. But now Bitcoin is around and it's a much better version of gold, in my opinion. And so Bitcoin has the opportunity to be the gold of this banking crisis sort of cycle. And the longer Bitcoin sort of delivers this negative correlation, the more it becomes true and the more like portfolio strategists that MS or GS or whoever will start. I'm very, I think it's very likely they'll start advocating for a position in Bitcoin instead of gold. So that's, I think, uh, yeah, that's a unique aspect of a banking crisis for crypto. I'm just going to highlight this because I, as an investor myself, I looked at everything, including gold prices. Gold prices are also at all-time high now, including mm-hmm. physical gold as well. So commodities did get a little bit of a surge in this period. But I think what one of the things that really happened during this period of time was that $1 million bet by Balaji Srivasan that pushes the Bitcoin against the ongoing bank runs starting with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, right? I know just based on some of, I think there was an update that I think Balaji has already settled the bets itself. But maybe I think we, I don't know whether the the Fed was big or the Treasury are just waiting for him to settle the bet and suddenly declare a bank. Sorry, just two coincidence, okay? It's coincidence, no conspiracy theory here. What are your thoughts on that whole $1 million bet? I think, Jin, you should, I should get you to talk about that. Yeah, I think Castle did such a good context. I think I agree with his view on Bitcoin. And I, I personally felt that government would actually step in to prevent more failures after they fumbled on Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. But they unfortunately did it. And we're seeing that the market live and with the First Republic being acquired by JP Morgan. I think this misstep will actually result in further distrust over the US banking system and actually help the narrative that Castle just laid out of decentralized asset. And you need to find a place to have custody of their own assets rather than believing in the middlemen or banks of that sort. So I think bigger banks will become obviously larger. They will become more monopolized in the sector. And I do think the narrative for crypto in general would benefit from whatever's happening. So I think we're going to see a constant struggle between the government and the believers in Web3, I would say. Mm. How's the $1 million bet? Would you have taken that bet, actually? Yeah, I mean, look, it's like, I think the purpose of the bet was much more about the statement he was making and, and the directionality than the actual dollar figure. Like, we all know a million dollar Bitcoin is just, in, in that proposed time frame, is preposterous. Like, it's just like not physically possible, I think. What Balaji was saying and his message about 
the devaluation of fiat through money printing and inflation. I don't totally agree that this, like the, the Fed's programs to save the banks, it's not increasing liquidity. So I kind of disagree with that premise, but like overall, the directionality of it and how that contrasts to Bitcoin, which has a limited supply, continues to validate the thesis. Although again, also caveat, Bitcoin having a limited supply actually is a problem for the long-term security, but you know, it's uh, directionally the Balaji's bet makes a lot of sense. I think directionally, he's correct. I just don't think the million dollar price can be achieved in such a short amount of time. And I think just look at this, this short amount of time is now basically just pushes the floor price back up to the 30K. When was that? Probably somewhere in 2021. So this is something that I find very, very interesting. I think it's a great marketing play, but well, you lost a million dollars, but you get a lot of people talking about Bitcoin as the alternative. I think that that's for probably Bilagi, how I thought yeah. it. Yeah, that's <laughs> for Bilagi, right? a million dollars, uh, probably a penny. Like, it's probably nothing to him, so. No, Great think PR about play. it. Yeah, you think about it this way. You know, the Bitcoin prices went up. So the actual amount of Bitcoins he has, he probably had a lot. And then, you know, that's about maybe 30, 30, 33 to 34 Bitcoin. You used to have to pay about 50 Bitcoins, so... That's a great marketing budget if you think about it from another point of view. Totally, yeah. It's it's a great marketing budget. It's not much. Mm, How many people okay. pay more than a million dollars for a marketing campaign? Yeah, that's probably true. Okay, enough with the macro side. So I'm going to get back into the investment side. So I know, and given that the GCR, Global Coin Research, actually also runs as an investment and research, we talked about it a little bit earlier. You alluded that the atmosphere is getting from a more formal to a very conservative. Junior also pointed that out as well. I want to now dive a little bit deeper. What is the atmosphere like for maybe Web3 and crypto startups seeking finance? I think we talk about the infrastructure projects. What about decentralized applications or even DeFi and even the NFTs? How are they actually holding up now in this, I call it a bearish period? I would say most funds are actually generalist, though they actually do not mind investing in either DeFi instrument applications or other verticals that they want to focus on. They, they don't have the luxury to be specialist given where crypto is. It's so early. Most projects do not have a product market fit that you would expect. And you know, to answer your question too, like it is generally difficult given the unf- unfavorable macro environment that we just discussed past 20, 30 minutes. But at the same time, I would say lack of competition makes it an easier environment for the startups and founders who have a good background and have a good idea and do want to build something. They actually do get the right amount of attention from venture capital funds, which is a good context for you to fundraise versus the bull market when you're competing with five different startups and some investors just might spend time with your project because they're just more focused on one or two projects that came through their own personal network. Mm. So... I think that's where the fundraising environment is across DeFi. I think personally, I haven't seen a lot of DeFi projects given the regulatory uncertainties and there has to be more clear usage case of what DeFi applications could be doing. But I think we alluded earlier that a lot of consumer applications, especially gaming in Asia, is a big vertical that a lot of people are spending more time on. And I think based on just the research, what what is the kind of current thinking in the crypto VCs? I mean, is it just... Are they only just investing in certain categories or are they going a bit wider generally? Because during the boom period in 2021, 2022, the middle of 2022, it, it feels to me that there was specialization. There were people looking at only DeFi, people looking at only an NFT gaming, and then people look at infrastructure. Personally, I think everyone's definitely looking at infrastructure. I've seen quote unquote smaller funds that don't have like a you know, billion dollars of EUM, like 
1K developers yeah, spending more time on NFTs and IP. So yes, they are more specialized than other bigger funds. But I do think most larger funds that we've heard of are more of a generalist because they want to cast a white net, given that there's more capital sitting on the sideline relative to the number of startups out there that's fundraising. So I want to come to this question that also baffles me at the moment is I, th- I think with all the layer twos or L2s starting their airdrops and the Ethereum community probably delivering on their milestones during this bearish period. I think there's the merge in last August and then now the Chappella or Shanghai upgrade in April. So are there still white spaces for alt L1 projects? To be honest, I don't think so. Like, for example, a lot of the existing, like the layer ones that, that kind of had their run back in 2021 and 2022. I think one of the main issues they realize right now is that they spent so much money on giving out thousands of dollars in grants for projects to deploy on their chain. And now they're like running out of funding or a lot of their builders have just left and have deployed on other chains. For example, like I think Arbitrum surprisingly has done really well without having a grabs program to attract a lot of the DeFi protocols to build on their chain. They've now started their own foundation and it seems like they're probably going to roll out a, a grabs program in the future. That's just to make sure that they can continue development on their chain versus having people leave their chain for like SWE, Optimism, like like even Bear Chain up, which is upcoming. But I think regardless for the alt layer ones that haven't launched yet, in reality, the only hope you have is like people speculating on your chain for an airdrop and then hoping that you can deliver a superior experience both for developers as well as users, which is very difficult because a lot of the chains that launch like on day one, you don't really see a lot of very like useful or like interesting applications on day one. But I think specifically, like this is not financial advice, but what I've been talking to Jen about is like bear chain is very interesting, mainly because they have a unique consensus mechanism that that really differentiates themselves from a lot of the other alt layer ones and layer twos. They have this like proof of liquidity mechanism, which allows individuals or like just anyone to deposit other consensus tokens into their own consensus vault to secure their network. So you can deposit Bitcoin, ETH, Atom, AVAX, like Matic, as well as other stable coins that secure the network to kind of fix this like capital efficiency issues that a lot of layer one struggle with. But yeah, I guess overall, I, nobody really cares about a lot of these other alt layer ones. Like majority of the activity have still been on Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism. Um, so it's, it, it's going to be tough. Mm. Does that mean actually Cosmos as an ecosystem will also be facing quite a lot of challenges because I think the alt layer ones, some of them came from the Cosmo ecosystem. I mean, Terra Luna was, okay, it's a very bad example because it doesn't yeah. reflect the whole Cosmo ecosystem, right? But they, they are generally where most of these L1, cha- L1 chains will show up. Yeah, that's, that, that's definitely one of the things like Cosmos was like the first pioneer in this like interoperability of, of multiple layer ones. But the issue is their vision was cooperation amongst all of these layer ones within the Cosmos ecosystem. But we really haven't seen that. Everyone's really competing against each other within the Cosmos ecosystem for liquidity. There's not versus working together to like build a huge hub of liquidity. I think they still have a lot of like, for example, Injective, I think they raised like, like a hundred million dollar investment fund to support projects building. On top of Injective, also like Barachain themselves, it's the EVM compatible L1 built on top of the Cosmos SDK. So I think the benefit is that both applications, like EVM applications can deploy 
and also reap the benefits of the interoperability of Cosmos. Because like Evmos was like the first EVM chain on in the Cosmos ecosystem, but I think they struggled just because Ethermint, which which was a framework they built on, had a lot of issues. So on day one, like you couldn't send transactions; it was very buggy. But I think with these other EVM chains, I hopefully there's better user experience. I want to pivot the question, just th- th- not thinking about the protocols, because I think you're talking about Aptos and Sui as well. But what about like the Web3 decentralized applications? They're supposed to be the promise of bringing that villain out there into crypto. Are the VCs actually actually looking at these apps? So for example, there's finance automation. I've seen a lot of these projects. I've seen a lot of tokenization of actual physical world assets coming into the Web3 apps. Maybe Jin can provide some color to that. I think they're definitely looking at these opportunities. I think per seed, pre-seed opportunities, most of them are actually decentralized applications. The problem is a lot of the founders, a lot of the good founders are not spending that much time into these applications, unfortunately, because most of them know, and we all know, the easiest way to make money in crypto right now is either build a lot of infrastructure projects or DeFi projects where you can attract a lot of capital. So that's that's the only reason why we are not seeing as many investments into decentralized applications. Flip side to that is we've seen a lot of agent conglomerates playing around with gamings or other social applications. That might be what triggers more founders being comfortable with building an application that actually works. So we're just looking for a few prototypes that actually could get more adoption and more usage cases that would probably force more founders to build something in this segment. And I was talking to Sakantoto recently on the Web3 gaming space because he, he's an expert. And one of the things he pointed out is that Asia gaming giants like Sony or Nintendos or even Korea's MapleStory, they are busy trying to work out how to get the blockchain online, whereas they are less dramatic, like the American publishers who say that either you enjoy the game or you shouldn't, or you can have crypto. They're less dogmatic about that. So I don't know, in terms of even thinking about these applications, do you think that that is going to be a, another space? Because infrastructure projects, part of the reason why people invest, as what you say, is investing in volatility, right? If I were to flip it the other way of looking into it. So it allows it when it goes into token airdrops, you can at least have an exit ramp. But when you think about, like, say, things like gaming is actually more IP-centric, NFT-centric. Right, exactly. That's why a lot of companies in Japan and, and in Asia are exploring opportunities for them to monetize IPs that they have gathered from their games and content that they have produced over the years. Maybe I should just ask the questions. I think you also indicated in the report. How are the GCR-funded companies like Mr. Labs, which is known for the Sui frameworks, actually like the framework for the NFT primitives, by the way. I actually did look at some of the stuff, that, how they are doing the N- NFTs, which is a little bit unique as well. There is also Utopia Labs and C3. I think C3 is a carbon credits exchange, right? Yep, it is. It's funny you mentioned Mr. Labs because like the Sui mainnet launched yesterday. So the token is already live. They had a pretty smart approach in launching their token. They allowed a lot of retail users to buy the token on, on these like centralized exchanges for out of, I think, 10 cents or like less. Just there's, they can only buy a set amount, but the token's trading at like a little over $1.30, I think, right now. And and the FDV is over thirteen billion right now, so it's it's a pretty successful launch, I would say. It, j- it just really comes down to the types of applications that launch on on Sui, because even Aptos, their largest DeFi protocol, which is Stella, doesn't even have that much TVL lock, maybe like fifty million or or even less. So hopefully Sui, because 
after speaking to a lot of developers, like Swede's consensus mechanism is, is pretty top tier. Maybe that'll allow a lot of higher quality applications to be built on top of it. And then there's also, surprisingly, a lot of our portfolio companies have been doing well. There's a few that actually pivoted into AI, uh, just given the craze. There's some that just have, are, are, that have been pivoting and refining. And for example, we have a portfolio formerly known as Pone No More. They're, they do automated smart contract testing. And now they've rebounded to Naria.ai, but they're still offering the same services. And I think they're one of our main portfolio companies that have been able to, that have raised successfully after our initial investment. They went through the Alliance Alliance DAO Accelerator program and was able to raise at a much higher valuation, which is pretty impressive in this current market. And then Utopia, the team, I think Jin's much closer with them, but they're very young and they grind every day. They recently launched a feature to allow like pretty much any any contributor to log in, view their pending payment, see when they're going to get paid next, just to provide more visibility to individual users on, instead of just like thousand companies themselves. And then how about the C3 based common credits? It's a market that seems to be very hot at one point in time. I think even Adam Neumann for former WeWorks CEO is also into his own version called Flow Carbon. How is that space panning out then? I've personally not been following them too long, but I know that they recently announced a partnership with this like specific like, private jet airline. I, I, I guess basically tokenizing their carbon credits. But the real world assets have been also kicking off. Just out, even outside of carbon credits, like what what I've been seeing recently, there's a lot of like treasury bill protocols that are trying to put treasury bills on chain and make it in a decentralized manner. Uh, like some require KYC, some are fully decentralized and and permissionless. But I think real world assets, I'm just not as familiar with. Uh, I don't know if Cosmo or Jen have more to add on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say the carbon credit market specifically, I think, have been a, a little tougher, but that's largely because of carbon credit specific issues mm-hmm. as opposed to crypto specific, like the ability to measure and authenticate properly and, and whether even a carbon credit is truly should be counted or not. I think there's a lot of controversy around that, but uh, they're actually really, really interesting it's probably one of the best markets for uh, to prove out or to, to use blockchain to solve because because it is so nascent because you don't have to disrupt an incumbent and because it's like it's less liquid and therefore like and therefore it would benefit from liquidity a lot more. So I think there's a lot of potential there, but like carbon credits as an industry has some issues. I'm going to now pivot again from the GCR report for the Q1. I want to go into a pretty interesting conversation I've been having. So. There have been a brief mentions of Asia leading the Web3 activity, also given partially because of the anti-crypto stance from the current US administration. Our favorite SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, or should I say also the former MIT professor as well. I lived through probably three crashes already. The Bitcoin Mount Gox crash, the crypto winter. I think that one was real winter. And then now this current, I call it a half bearish market because I think the crypto winter was worse. I was listening to a couple of podcasts, whether it's A16Z or even Bankless, and they were saying that one of the things that actually has been happening under the belly is actually that the amount of developer activity in Asia is rising. It's actually similar to the 2019 to 2022 wave, just to also highlight. Like for example, in Southeast Asia, all the, what I call the tourist VCs who pivoted from Web 2 to Web 3 have all gone silent. So great, I don't need to talk to them anymore. And while I'm just doing, still doing my Web 3 investments, Southeast Asia holds a lot of key projects that people don't really know about, like CoinGecko is in 
Malaysia, or Sky Mavis in Vietnam, GG in Philippines, you know. And then when I talk to gaming companies, I can feel that there is some activity going on. I'm seeing quite a lot of activity coming from Hong Kong recently. I think there's a lot of clarity now in terms of legislation, whether it's in Hong Kong, Dubai, London, Singapore, the financial hubs. Is that the reason why this is happening? Or maybe you all have other data points that I don't know about, but that is my current view of the situation. I think like for instance, like Japan, I think the government's actually taking an active stance to support entrepreneurs because they probably realize the only way Japan could rejuvenate their country as a whole that's been aging for decades is to really support entrepreneurs and invest into these startups. And one of the two trends that's hot right now, I would say is crypto and AI. So they did the ETH Tokyo event and they're going to do more events later down the road, but the government actually testing out, experimenting with the idea of DAOs and other crypto native terms because they do want more people to start building, build like a world-class startups and applications so that that could be, a country could benefit from the surge and user base of these applications, just like how they did with the gaming back in the day with Sega and so on. Mm. Cosmo, any, any thoughts? Because you see the trading activity and I, I probably be quite honest, a lot of trading activity is actually coming from Asia at the moment. Yeah, it sounds like it's not lost to you because you sit over there, but here here in the US and, and to your US listeners, at least, I think what may be lost is that despite the US's sort of very aggressive stance against crypto, the totally opposite attitude is being adopted by governments on the other side of the world. And Jin talked a little bit about Japan. I, I would just highlight Hong Kong and Hong Kong really as you know a proxy to China, mainland China. But like, it's very clear that China is opening up to crypto through Hong Kong. Like this is a total about face from less than two years ago when China banned crypto trading and mining in 2021 and all of a sudden reopening to retail in Hong Kong in June, like coming up. I think China's reopening up to crypto as a response to a few factors, uh, which gives me confidence that this isn't like a short-term, short-lived kind of thing. First is China is really increasing the priority of economic growth over social control in their economy. I mean, a totally different issue than Japan, which has been dealing with 0% growth for 20 years. But like China, you know, is going from six to five is really scary or five to four is really scary for other people. And so in particular, it's tech giants have slowed a lot because of regulation in China. And so they're trying to get that back, right, by, by looking at crypto. Second is that China is really trying to regain lost mindshare from the last few years in Asia. The center of gravity for capital in Asia has very seriously shifted towards Singapore after the Hong Kong political issues, after China's extended COVID lockdown. And so people in Hong Kong and government officials in Hong Kong are looking across the ocean and saying, oh my God, like we've got to do something. And so they're up way more lax sort of foreign visa requirements, becoming a lot more open to crypto in order to get back that market share that they've lost to Singapore. And then third is probably more directly in response to geopolitical attention with US is just like, the US is taking an anti-crypto stance, so China is going to take a pro-crypto stance. And like, and that's just like another avenue for China to tilt the world away from the dollar standard and invest behind an early growth industry like they have in Africa. So I do think that we are seeing serious amounts of people, interest, developers, capital come back to crypto from the second largest economy in the world. I'll give you another indicator that I see from whether there's increasing activity. So I actually go to different developer events, whether it's hosted by Binance or different protocols within Asia itself. So sometimes I just sneak in and just see what's going on. And I find that the developer activity, I was like thinking there's just probably going to be four or five people showing. But this time around, I, I'm going in, I'm still seeing the same crowds, like 
the hundred and I go by this index of if I don't know the people there, that means it's, it's a good sign. And I keep going and seeing fresh new people. So I'm like, okay, there's still some there's still some activity and then start hearing about their projects may not be the best, but you know, you start to feel the activity different from the IRLs and the Ethereum's kind of developer events. And I think I, I can see that a lot happening. I don't know what's the US situation like because you also have things like the consensus, EVE, Denver events. I mean, you guys have just been a couple of all these big events. How's the feeling on the ground like? I can start first. I think ETH Denver, it was actually quite busy. I was genuinely surprised. There were a lot of new faces and new influx of young talent, obviously. The narrative was all on ZK and a few other infrastructure sectors that, that was hot. Like there were a lot of, I mean, there was a WallaCon too on top of that. Consensus was smaller than last year, which is, isn't surprising because ETH Denver was more developer focused. So we would naturally see more developers into the event. And it's also free that probably meet more people coming into the city for the event. For consensus, it was just more institutional folks, like people who work in, you know, in banks like JP Morgan want to check out the scene and see like how big financial giants could get into the space was the purpose. So it wasn't really intellectually interesting. So that was my takeaway for ETH Denver and consensus. So if I were to ask this question to all of you, will US lose its dominance in crypto and Web3 with just the rest of the world picking up the tab? Because it seems to be the case. Look, we'll see. I think it's we're certainly it certainly feels like we're headed in that direction. But it, you know, the way of how natural systems work is that they tend towards balance and mean reversion. And so We'll see. Clearly, the near-term signs are that U.S. is clamping down. The rest of the world is opening up. Coinbase and Gemini just opened up their international exchanges this week. But, like, you know, on the flip side, is are things going to get that much worse in the U.S.? Probably not. Like, they're pretty bad. I like uh, Gensler is already getting a ton of pushback from Republican senators in the latest hearing. And so... Yeah, we'll see. Like U.S. is still the locus of of capital and and funding and talent, but it is at risk. But you know, natural systems do tend towards mean reversion, so we'll see. Yeah, what about you? Are, are you optimistic? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm optimistic. Definitely a lot of open points in the U.S. that we have to see how it evolves. But at the end of that, I view it almost like a geopolitical issue. I think if the U.S. does shut down new technology like cryptocurrency and it will probably be a similar case for AI. I think the U.S. is really going to like, you know, it's going to give up a trend in the world. And I think it's going to be more complicated than just is it a security or not, I would say. Well, you know, somebody should just take Gary Gensler, the professor, and Gary Gensler, the SEC chairman, and do the Kobe. One say it, and the other say it, and then you totally get a very total satire. I just, I'm just surprised that no one has done that at the moment. Yeah. That aside, what are y'all now looking forward to in Q2 2023? What, what would be the most interesting things you want to look at? Who wants to give a go on that? I don't see much difference in Q2 versus Q1. I think we're just going to keep focusing on finding good founders and hopefully we see new faces. That's what drives me every day to wake up and start the day. And we're probably going to see more projects come up hopefully more in the decentralized application or consumer applications versus the infrastructure project. So that's where my head is at. I mean, hopefully that continues. And the more product we see in the near term, we're going to see more adoption and probably allow us to see the bull market become faster. Possible. Yeah, I would say uh, it's good that there's a lot of capital being deployed towards infrastructure-like projects. The perverse side effect is that there's not a lot of capital being deployed towards user-facing applications, which is ultimately what matters. Like, it doesn't matter if you build infrastructure if there are no users. 
in that sense, I'm hopeful that we'll start to see a lot more capital and interest flow back towards the user side of the, of the house, where it's clearly underinvested versus overinvested in infrastructure. And I think the first possible signs of that are one little talked about upgrade to Ethereum was a cloud abstraction that was sort of placed in and sort of a soft fork before Chappella. And uh, we're, you're starting to see actually some new projects come out that take advantage of account abstraction to make transaction execution easier to sort of to subsidize gas costs. And so that could be exciting to start to see some of those, you know, see what people can do to onboard new users with an easier process enabled by account abstraction. Otherwise, you know, broadly, I'm looking out for continued hopeful decoupling of price and fundamentals for crypto versus equities. I think the equities markets have a lot of downside risks. There's clearly an impending crunch in commercial real estate. There will be recession-driven earnings revisions downwards. But if crypto can sort of prove itself out and start to grow on its own, then, you know, prices follow fundamentals. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that crypto can return to being a very high-performing asset class. Jenny, how about you? Personally, I'm interested in seeing the competition and the go-to-market strategy between a lot of deep Web3 social applications, because now we have Blue Sky, Farcaster, and Lens at the infrastructure layer, and there's a lot of applications building on top of it. And honestly, right now, like Farcaster and Lens have very niche communities, very high-quality niche communities where you can interact with founders, very intelligent people in, in, in the Web3 space. But we really need to hope that this mass adoption occurs with these types of applications. And one of the ways I see this coming is if we're able to get like these key influencers in Web2 to migrate over to one of these Web3 social applications and like exclusively post their content on a Web3 social app, just so that people are forced to like sign up and, and, and use these Web3 social applications because they can't get this content anywhere else. Okay. Many thanks for coming on the show, all three of you. And Thank you for the conversation. And in closing, I've got two questions. My first question is, any recommendations which have recently inspired your life? For example, books, movie, TV shows, or even some exotic recommendations? Actually, one of the things my friend told me, he told me to read a book called like The One Thing. And it's really about focusing like every day instead of like trying to do so many different things. It's just really writing down one thing that you want to do during that day. And, and and accomplishing that and making sure that one thing is specified enough and that doing that will help you reach your like long-term goal. Cosmo? I can keep mine very, very simple and timely maybe is like try using ChatGPT. I've, I ask very stupid questions and I found it to be much more helpful for cooking than I would have thought. Like oftentimes I'm like, am I supposed to brave this chicken at 320 or 350? And like, what happens? And you just ask ChatGPT, gives you everything you need. It's amazing. It gives you the right recipe, right? <laughs> Not, <laughs> Not always, but it's pretty good. Not always. They, as they say, AI do hallucinate, but it's pretty good. I got to recommend a book to you because you recommended the, the initial book to me. I would like to recommend More Than You Know by Michael Mobos. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. It's an and extremely good book. book. Like in, in this period of bearish period, that was the best book for me to read, to think about what the market, where the market is going and how to prepare myself for the next bull run. Jin, what about you? Any recommendations? Yeah, a book I recently read is called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's a fantastic book that people should read. It just tells you about how, how to negotiate. And I think that just like that skill set would just be applicable to any relationship you have. So highly recommend it. It's a great book. Mm -hmm. So how can my audience find you? I also recommend everyone to join the GCR DAO, you know, be a member and get your newsletter from you. Twitter for all of us, I think. 
Mm, so I put all your Twitter names on it and you can definitely find this show on YouTube and definitely subscribe to us on our monthly newsletter where we give in the key highlights and of course on every podcast platform. So once again, Juni, Jin and Cosmo, many thanks for coming on the show. So I'm looking forward to talk to you all for the next queue as well. Sounds good. Thank you for having thanks us. Thanks for having us.